Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. First thing I need to say is all of you are expecting George Monbiot. Could you please leave now? Um, I'm absolutely delighted with the turnout. It's phenomenal. Um, I wasn't expecting this until they told me recently it was more or less a sellout, as it were. So that's fantastic uh, that there is that level of interest in rewilding. I hope your interest will be even fiercer after this talk. I'm going to bring you up to date with everything that I know of that um, is going on, in, particularly in England, with regard to rewilding. Uh, I'm going to start with principles and priorities and definitions, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Then I'm going to move into giving you examples of what's happening, some of the challenges we face. Uh, then I'm going to discuss how we might influence, how I'm trying to influence with Rewilding Britain, future government policy on rewilding to make it easier for landowners and farmers to rewild. And I'll finish with a quick summary of where we're at on species reintroductions. And I intend to leave plenty of time for questions because usually that's the really interesting bit when you get to the heart of the matter with people ask, asking nasty, difficult questions. <laughs> so um, please think of some for me because it helps us to develop our thinking uh, as we move forward in this exciting area. First of all, I just want to quickly uh, explain a little bit about my background. I was very fortunate to be brought up in the middle of nowhere in this uh, 14th century cottage in the Cotswolds uh, near Stroud, a few miles out of Stroud, and spent all my childhood roaming the woods, spending a lot of time in trees, elm trees, uh, which of course you can't do much climbing of these days. Um, and uh, it was a wonderful upbringing. I did all those things that it's not necessary to do now, like sticking pins to insects and skinning animals and collecting birds' eggs and all those things. But it taught me about nature. It taught me about what was what, and my dad was great at that. But it didn't necessarily tell me why it was there, how it related to its environment and habitat. Um, and those things I've had to come to learn through my work uh, for 34 years in, in uh, working on rivers and wetlands. And I also had the privilege to spend all my holidays, every single holiday of every single year of my childhood, in the same place. This amazing island, Bardsey Island, and I'm sure there are people in the room who've been there. A quite remarkable wild place off the clean peninsula in North Wales. And that photo, uh, that sketch there um, just shows you <laughs> the kind of paraphernalia that I was brought up with with my dad having shearwaters hanging from the ceiling and a dead cormorant from the <laughs> lampshade and things like that. That was the kind of upbringing and that's why I've been doing this. I've been involved in conservation for over 40 years. That, that really sold it to me. So I have to start, having said that, with this fundamental premise. I can say this because, as I say, 42 years in conservation, I've been involved in thousands of projects with hundreds of organizations for decades, and we are still going backwards on biodiversity. Um, it clearly is not enough to just have a great network of protected sites and nature reserves and planning policies and stewardship schemes for farmers. That's not enough. And there is no way that we can afford to do 10 times more of that. It's quite labor intensive. It's quite management intensive. 
So we need to think, right, how are we going to deal with this? We can't give up on these things. Goodness knows where we'd be if we hadn't had all this amazing network of protected sites and good practices. And we need to keep those going. But we need to bear in mind that we can't multiply them tenfold. We can't afford to do that. There isn't enough money available to do that. So what extra can we do? And the answer is that the extra, the additional piece of the jigsaw that's missing is rewilding. We need to keep going with the best jewels in the crown. And we need to rewild in a way that I will explain later so that those jewels in the crown serve to seed these rewilding sites, and vice versa, um, so that we can gradually reverse that decline in biodiversity and deliver all these very important public goods uh, to, to uh, make our environment and societal living a healthier and better place. So this is a fundamental premise. This is why we need it. Here is my tweetable definition. If you like, I've kept it as short as possible. We use this in Rewilding Britain um, uh, in a longer form. You can go to the Rewilding Britain website to see more on definition, priorities and principles. But this simple definition is what I need to explain. And there are two fundamental parts of this that I should uh, emphasise. First of all, what do I mean by large scale? So speaking for England right now, uh, I would say that if you are rewilding, and I'll explain the principles and how later, but if you are rewilding in an area of a thousand acres or more, you will almost certainly be able to demonstrate significant biodiversity gain whilst applying rewilding principles of reducing management over time, and you will be able to measure the ecosystem service benefits that operating at that scale delivers. The flood risk reduction, the improved water quality, better carbon sequestration, etc., etc. So a thousand acres is roughly where we're suggesting anything above that you could definitely consider to be rewilding. But we mustn't discourage small-scale rewilding. We need to encourage every bit of that, and I'll talk about the spectrum in a minute, but we want to encourage everybody to embark on this journey. Um, but the main advice that I give, we give to small landowners is try and talk to your neighbours. See if you can make things bigger. See if you can actually embrace the principles uh, of rewilding at scale. And the second thing that I need to emphasise with this statement, this definition, is what, what we mean by nature taking care of itself uh, and, and this bit serves to remind us that this is a, a long journey. We're not going to suddenly be able to jump to the point where nature is taking care of itself, where we're totally hands-off. We, we, we could if we chose to do so, but we wouldn't achieve the biodiversity gains in most of our country because we're living in a highly managed environment. And to kick-start the rewilding process, we need to intervene. So, think of it as a journey, rewilding. Think of it as a spectrum of activity. And when you get to the top of that, where you are totally hands-off, nature is taking care of itself at scale, and man is having no impact whatsoever, then you've rewilded. But rewilding is a present participle. It's an ongoing activity, and we are trying to move in that direction in the right places. 
Now, why I've talked about, obviously I've talked about the, con the amazing conservation effort for the last 50 to 100 years in this country, but I've talked about that not being enough, and, and I just wanted to emphasize the baseline that we are working with. So I've had the good fortune to visit all the national parks in England in the last few years. I've been to many of them many times before as part of my previous work. And there are some amazing, beautiful, hugely biodiverse parts of our national parks. But to be quite frank, they fall well short, well short of what they should be in terms of biodiversity. And if you look at this map from Steve Carver at Leeds, uh, which illustrates the degree of wildness in our national parks, you can see very little dark green in the English and Welsh national parks. And you have to go to the Cairngorms to, to see what is close to being wild. Now, this is based on a set of criteria, not just, not just biodiversity. But nevertheless, it gives you a good impression of the baseline, the relatively low baseline that we're working with, even in supposedly our best wildest sites. And as I say, I've seen lots of amazing, beautiful places, but I've seen lots of places like this, which I describe the, a lot of these Lake District scenes as quite pretty. They're sort of green and blue and lumpy, but they're not ecologically particularly biodiverse. And I look at that landscape and, and I can, you know, I can just envisage how much better it could be if it had a greater range of natural habitats within it. And then there are some extreme examples, particularly on the tops of quite a lot of our national parks, where you will more or less walk uh, for hours through a monoculture of either heather or, or grassland, millennia grassland. And so there are, you know, a lot of places where we could make a real difference relatively easily should we choose to do so and it's not just the habitat baseline that is relatively low look at these figures <clears throat> these are figures for the number of kills from a scottish estate number of gamekeeper kills from a scottish estate over a period of three years from the mid 1800s and this is not me having a go at gamekeepers i always say Given, where I, given my upbringing, if I'd been brought up 100 years previously, I would have probably wanted to be a gamekeeper. That was the sort of country life that I would have probably been led into. What, the reason for showing this is to remind ourselves of the incredible biomass that used to exist that underpinned these huge numbers of predators that could be controlled within a given estate in three years and still have plenty left to control in the years after. Just think of the billions of invertebrates and small mammals and small birds and variety of plant types that underpinned this astonishing list of kills. Quite incredible. So we need to remember that baseline. And although rewilding implies looking back, it's, we should really think about it as being fit for the future. That's what we're aspiring to do, is to try to restore a landscape that is fit for the future for wildlife and people. But we need to look back sometimes to remind ourselves of what we used to have and, and think to ourselves, can we challenge ourselves to try and recover that? And recovering a, um, a biomass in a given area of this kind of scale 
is something that we should think very seriously about trying to achieve. The other thing I want to emphasize with this list is uh, to focus you on the bottom two entries in these two columns. Those are very low figures for generalist predators, which nowadays would be top of the list by far in most uh, gamekeepers' uh, kill lists. And this serves to remind us that if you remove the specialist predators from the environment, which we've done over the last 150 years, then you create an opportunity for these generalists to become top dog. And that's exactly what's happened with things like foxes and magpies. The reason we have such incredible predation problems for ground-nesting birds is predominantly because we have lots of corvids and foxes that are occupying niches that much more specialist predators used to occupy. So there is a, an incidental point there which is also worth noting. So this baseline, these baselines, habitat, landscape, species, are things we need to bear in mind, but they're not necessarily trying to go back and replicate, replicate some point in time, but we need to remember them. Now, I want to say a little bit about the organisation that I work for uh, part-time, which is Rewilding Britain. It's a tiny organisation, um, only around four FTEs, um, and we were formed five years ago by Rebecca Wrigley and Hannah Grace, shown here. Uh, they formed it, having been inspired by George Monbiot's book, Feral. Um, George himself has no involvement with the organisation, but he is Rebecca Wrigley's partner. So sometimes, as indeed came up today when I spoke to the BBC Rural Affairs Committee, sometimes that slightly clouds the issue. Um, however, as you can probably tell, I am my own man, and Rebecca is definitely her own woman, and she and I see eye to eye on rewilding and how we should be delivering it. So I want to emphasize that um, although George creates the conversation space uh, and sometimes you know, causes me to explain to farmers how my approach is different, um, he doesn't actually have anything to do with the organization. I'm delighted that a couple of my colleagues are in the room today. They're, you know, I can count them on two hands. And uh, so about 30% of our team are here today, uh, which is great. Um, but we intend to stay small. Um, you know, I've always said, if we're really successful, you won't need us in 10 or 20 years' time. Rewilding will have been mainstreamed. Wildlife Trust, National Trust, uh, RSPB, local authorities, government agencies will have got it, and we'll be doing it and you won't need us. That would be a fantastic measure of success. The other thing that I should just mention at this point is the ambition of rewilding Britain, which I'm starting to think might be slightly unambitious. But three years ago, when Rebecca and I took on the role of leading the organisation, um, you know, we were happy to settle for a target of a million hectares to be rewilded, uh, or sorry, to be rewilding, uh, by 2100, a million hectares in Britain by 2100. Now that's less than 5% of the country. Bear in mind, 70% of the country is farmed. Um, you can see that it's a relatively small target, but at the time it seemed almost impossible. But things are changing pretty fast, and actually now I'm beginning to wonder if we might, might be long before we need to be a bit more ambitious. But That'll do for now. A million hectares is still, is still a challenge. Now, I want to um, 
just explain this rewilding spectrum to you. Just bear with me, I need to have a quick drink. Now, this is really uh, reiterating the point I made about the journey and the steps we need to take. So on the vertical scale, you have management intensity from low to high, and then along the bottom, you have uh, size of area, logarithmically. This is taken from John Lawton's work, and you will see in the top left-hand corner our biggest and best uh, protected sites, triple SIs, nature reserves, etc. Quite small, um, quite intensively managed. And then in the opposite corner, you will see Yellowstone, Okavango, big, huge wilderness areas in countries which have lots of space. Now, we cannot aspire to get anywhere near that because we don't have the space. But we have in Europe places like Polesi and Oostvaardeplassen, which are bigger and are much less managed. And we do have a few examples like Nep and Ennerdale, and actually quite a lot more, which I'll show you later now, um, which are much less managed. Um, actually, the, to be honest, John Norton's got the dots in the wrong place there. Those dots should be um, roughly uh, parallel in scale with the, the biggest and best of these sites. They're not as far into the middle as, as shown here. I need to redo that map to make it slightly more accurate. So what we need to do is to take a huge leap from here to about here in the spectrum, in amongst those European big examples. Now, that's not very far on the graph, but it's a huge step to take for us as a society to get our heads around what we need to do uh, to make that step. That's the kind of journey, the rewilding journey, that we need to focus on. Um, it's, it's, it's not far on the graph, but it's far in our minds to make that step. <clears throat> I just want to quickly run you through now the key principles. And this first one is absolutely critical. It is not just thrown in here as a sop to make you know, people think, oh, we're, we're lovey-dovey. This is serious. We need to bring people with us. We have to try to engage with communities from the bottom up. That means we are increasingly reliant on them coming to us with ideas and opportunities to rewild. And we have to remember that Homo sapiens is a species that belongs in this environment anyway. We, are, we belong there just as much as any other species. The challenge is, can we belong there without impacting detrimentally on the rest of nature and the environment? And, and the answer is, yes, we can if we want to, because we know what we need to do. But bringing people along, making it work economically as well as environmentally, is critically important. The second one is about size. I've touched on that already, but size really does matter when it comes to rewilding. You can only really apply those principles of extensive grazing, for example, a big animals grazing over very large areas un, unimpeded by fences. You can only do that at scale to do it effectively, to do it properly. So the bigger, the better. This next one, natural processes, boring technical term, but again, extremely important. And I just want to quickly talk you through the overall principle here. So if you're going to achieve natural processes at scale in a landscape, 
you need to have healthy functioning soils and water. You need to have a healthy functioning mix of vegetation types, the right kind of natural vegetation types. You need to have the right kind of mix of things that impact on that vegetation, the herbivores. And you need to have the right mix of things that impact on those herbivores, the top end carnivores. But let's work from the bottom up. Soils and water, we do know what to do. Again, if we were minded to sort that out, we could do that. We could achieve healthy functioning systems. Vegetation, well, that depends on what's impacting on the vegetation. So can we get the right mix of herbivores into that landscape, the natural mix? And right now, at this point in time, at scale, in the wild, no, we can't. Because society is not yet ready for bison and elk to be roaming the countryside. And we can't recreate tarpan and aurochs because they're extinct. So what do we do in the meantime to continue on this journey? We have to utilize something as close as we possibly can get to those kind of grazing impacts that that range of species would have brought. And those things are rare breed animals appropriate for that landscape. Rare breed cattle, pigs, ponies, etc. This is not pure rewilding because already we are utilizing a species that is a, well, a, a breed of species that is not like the original but remember what I said about referring to the past but not trying to copy it so there's a compromise already but you know if you if it serves to achieve the natural processes that's okay and then at the top of the food chain at the top of the trophic tiers the carnivores and again because of societal distancing from nature, we are not ready to have wolves and bears and lynx back. And I haven't got enough time left to try and fight with government on reintroducing wolves into this country. It's better that we focus on those things that we can reintroduce, and I will talk more about species, uh, species reintroductions later. So in the absence of these top-end apex predators, we need to try to replicate their impact uh, and in order to maintain this, this natural balance between grazing animals and vegetation, soils and water. And that means we, in effect, act as the apex predator. And if that means you have to harvest, or, sorry, it does mean you would have to control the animals, but if that means you're controlling them, you may as well harvest them. And that is why rewilding, as it, as it is at the moment in this country, a la NEP and, and most of the other, if not all the other estates and clusters of farmers I'm dealing with, involves harvesting animals and selling animal products in order for it to work economically as well as in terms of achieving natural processes. And the final point is, you know, this is a very long journey. I talked about a 2100 target. Um, I, I, I was describing it as a marathon, uh, but actually I want to emphasize that it does involve a lot of activity and intervention to kickstart the rewilding process. And so I describe it as a marathon with a sprint start now that, you, you know, you have to 
uh, intervene a lot just to kickstart this transition towards being able to then withdraw over time. Now, the first meeting that I had when I joined Rewilding Britain, I thought I may as well ring the NFU and go and see my old friends in the policy team there. And actually, well, you know, it was a pretty good meeting. They're a bit apprehensive. Um, but the thing that they threw at me is farmers want to know what it looks like. <clears throat> and actually, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer. In fact, there is no single answer because it depends. And I'm just using these to show you a range of situations which uh, give you a feel for this. So in the top, you will see uh, the Carifran Wildwood, which is a tree, a massive 500,000 tree planting exercise uh, in a valley that had been previously grazed um, and is largely covered in bracken and grassland. Now, that in a relatively short space of time looks pretty good, but those trees were planted. That was not natural regeneration. Those were planted trees. If you look at the two images at the bottom, you see two examples of natural regeneration, not a million miles apart, um, one 20 years, one 30 years, but completely different because of topography and aspect and height above sea level, etc., from West Wales. And you will see quite a lot of natural regeneration in the bottom left, um, and then the fence line, which excludes sheep from one area and not another, you, you can just about make out trees. It is a winter shot, but you can make out a few trees. But in 30 years, because of the absence of seed sources nearby, very little uh, recolonization, natural regeneration. And so this serves to remind us that, you know, you have to take every case on its own merits and make decisions about how and whether and if you want to intervene and, and how you do that to start with. And this, this is a challenge. Managing expectations is a challenge. This is another example from Allerdale in northern Scotland. Um, and I visited last summer after first going there back in 2007. And <clears throat> I'd use this photo because, again, you can see Caledonian pines that are planted in the foreground. Uh, they were just planted when I first visited. They were just being planted then. Um, and they've done quite well. But if you look beyond that, because they haven't done any further planting in that particular part of the valley, uh, it hasn't really changed significantly, even though they've significantly reduced the deer numbers. It is definitely moving in the right direction, but you know it takes uh, a lot of effort to, to, tran to transition these sites, um, visually particularly, uh, uh, in these sorts of locations in, in, in difficult, difficult climates. And so, you know, we are having to manage landowners' expectations that this is not going to happen overnight. And uh, natural regeneration, as is the case at NEP, and I'll rerun this uh, two or three times for you, natural regeneration in the south is actually probably the way to go in most places where you've got good, healthy populations of uh, trees around you. Then you will see, you know, quite rapid transition uh, if you have the right kind of conditions. Um, now, so I'm going to rerun this. Now, the things to bear in mind here are that, uh, first of all, this is a 15-year sequence. You're starting with arable fields, which are fenced off. They, there, are, there are deer in this landscape, even before they introduced other grazing animals. Um, but it's, essentially, it's fenced off from those grazing animals to start with. The first few images probably have exclusion of animals. You have very good uh, seed uh, and fruit-rich hedgerows, so lots of oaks, uh, hawthorn, 
blackthorn, dog rose, etc., in, in, and bramble in the hedgerows. And you have lots of jays and squirrels who are the vectors for doing a lot of the planting for you. Uh, and what they also uh, had to do here up front was to break up the land drains. So you will see water starting to sit in the landscape as I run the time-lapse sequence. So this is very, very important when I'm dealing with landowners in low-lying areas. Breaking up land drains uh, is, is a fundamental part of this kick-starting of the rewilding process. So, so you're starting with an arable field, excluding animals, um, and then gradually, after a few years, natural regeneration of uh, scrub starts to take place, water starts to settle. Animals are now in, there are pigs messing up, you can see turbidity in the water body here. And you can see how rapidly that can transition. And for those of you who've been to that, you will know just how wonderful and spectacular it is. It's a great place to be. Certainly for me, I've seen literally probably thousands of wildlife sites, and it's one of the richest sites that I've seen in the country. The added advantage of having examples like this is that they've managed to make it work economically as well. And now they have this uh, very significant business running safaris and camping and glamping, etc. But the real, really important element of this landscape, the, the, the thing that has made the real difference, is the mix of low numbers of these grazing animals that have um, created this heterogeneity within the landscape. And I just want to run you through some video clips now just to show you uh, the sorts of uh, grazing techniques and, and uh, grazing preferences that these animals have. So they have all the species of deer, uh, roe, red, fallow, and, and also uh, muntjac uh, in this landscape. And they're all having a slightly different impact and they're all uh, you know, behaving slightly differently, congregating in different areas at different times. Um, and they are contributing to this heterogeneity. Then they have Exmoor ponies, and these are the proxies, if you like, for the tarpan, uh, the extinct wild pony. Now, different parts of the country will require different types of rare breed. I'm not an expert in rare breeds, but there will be certain parts of the country, certain habitats, certain locations, where certain breeds are more appropriate than others to try and achieve this natural balance, and also more appropriate in terms of the welfare of the animals. But one thing's for sure, I'm, I may not be an expert, but I know a healthy looking animal when I see one, and all of these animals at NEP and other rewarding sites like them are in excellent condition, and I've heard that from feedback from vets as well, that they are in supreme condition. And these are longhorn cattle, which are again the proxy for aurochs, um, and again they are having slightly different impacts, different chewing mechanisms, different preferences. Uh, they, they particularly like um, it, to chew on woody material, particularly in winter, uh, uh, for nutrition, etc. So, so all creating their own impact. Now, again, this is, this is you, you, we can't just introduce certain numbers of animals and, and, let it, and let it be. One needs to tinker with this because we, you know, we're learning as we go along on what is roughly the natural balance. And so, yes, controlling numbers of animals, manipulating them, sometimes uh, 
perhaps excluding them from certain areas for certain periods of time. That is a compromise that is having to be made. The pigs are the real stars of the show. These are Tamworths. And they are the proxy for the wild boar. Now, ideally, we'd have wild boar in the landscape, but unfortunately, they're on the dangerous wild animals list. It's virtually impossible to get a license to reduce, release them to the wild. Um, and so the next best thing in most cases is something like a Tamworth pig. And they, you know, it's quite shocking when you see what they do to some of this ground. You know, even for me, uh, who's used to seeing untidy landscapes, um, you know, it's quite dramatic. But once you realise you've just got a few animals roaming across a huge area, then you, you slowly come to terms with the fact that actually they're doing a great job. And the part of the reason the turtle doves are there, uh, and the purple emperors even are there, are because of the pigs. The pigs... Uh, stir up and plough up the land, particularly in and around the wetland areas, as you can see here. That creates, it creates bare ground for unusual arable plants uh, to germinate. The turtle doves feed their young on a mix of these arable plant seeds and water. They call it pigeon milk. They feed it to their young, and they nest in these amazing hedgerows around the estate. So there's a connection between pigs and turtle doves, and also between pigs and purple emperor butterflies. Uh, the, the pigs are creating again ground which sallow seeds into and sallow is the food plant and when you've got sallow sitting alongside fantastic oak trees again you have uh, what uh, purple emperors need and so as a result um, you have this astonishing biodiversity now I'm starting to get fed up of citing NEP as the model uh, it's the one that everyone quotes but we are getting to the stage where there are other places around the country uh, who are now on this same journey. And this is where academia comes in. This is where we need universities and colleges to, to be involved. And indeed, every landowner that I'm dealing with who's rewilding at scale, I'm pointing them to the best contact for their local universities. Because we need to monitor the baselines. I'm not saying it's all going to be wonderful like NEP. It's going to vary from place to place around the country. But I am saying that in every case, I am very confident we can improve the wildlife value of these areas. And if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. It's eminently readable. Um, Izzy has now sold nearly 200,000 copies of a book on nature, which is quite remarkable uh, for something that isn't edited by David Attenborough. So, um, so um, she's becoming a star in her own right with this. But yeah, please do get hold of it. It tells the story wonderfully well. And, it, and indeed, it's inspiring most of these other people to start to talk about rewarding. So I want to just um, quickly emphasize these other benefits. I could give you a whole lecture on the public goods thing. You know, I, I used to do lectures on the, the multiple benefits of catchment restoration uh, when I was in the EA. And, uh, and, it based, and that lecture goes through lots of examples where people have measured the reduced flood risk of... Uh, rewetting peat bogs, etc. Um, but there are very significant benefits of doing these kind of things at scale, and, and the future farming approach, which I'll come on to later, hopefully will be rewarding uh, delivery of these benefits. Then there's the bit about nature-based economy, and I'm not expecting there to be thousands of NEPs everywhere, all making money from hundreds of people booking up tree houses and shepherd's huts to be in a rewilding environment, but Let's be honest, 
we are scratching the surface with this kind of economy at the moment in this country. We've got a long way to go before we get to saturation. And so it is time, and, uh, you know, and I'm delighted to see that many landowners are now thinking about this, it is time to diversify so that more and more people can get in touch with nature and indeed farmers can start to make a living from this part of managing or unmanaging their land. Uh, it's going to be essential if, for many if they're going to survive in marginal areas in some parts of the country. And the other key benefit is that through doing this, we are leaving the land and water in better condition for future generations. And I will say to farmers, say, well, if they say to me, well, what happens if we have a third world war or something in 20 years' time? What are we going to do then? We're going to have to chop it all down. Well, okay, if that's the horrible case, we will have to chop it all down perhaps, but your soil and water will be in better condition for future farming. We cannot go on as we are plundering the land uh, and expect to call it sustainable farming. So just a little bit on the, on the evidence here. Um, so the future farming policy, which I'll talk about in a minute, this is called, pub, you know, we're referring to it as a public money for public goods approach. So moving away from the common agricultural policy arrangements where uh, landowners are essentially paid to farm more and more, produce more and more, uh, which is actually not very productive because once you get to a certain point on the production uh, scale, you just invest more uh, into trying to manage the land. You buy more capital items, you buy more food, you buy more medication, you don't make more profit. There is a definite cutoff. And there's a great farmer study uh, produced by uh, a farmer in Yorkshire, which shows this consistently. That it's just driving people to just work harder and harder without any additional profit. The public money for public goods approach will reward landowners per hectare for managing their land to do things like this. So to restore, for example, restore peat bogs. Um, to uh, restore upland mires, to, at the same time as restoring them, creating wonderful uh, variety of habitats. And I've been, in, I had the good fortune to be involved in lots of these kind of projects around the country. Um, these, these are all my own photos. And, you know, they really do make a difference. We've got, and we've got good evidence for, measured on the ground from those projects that tell you, uh, give you facts and figures like this. And we need more and better of that moving forward to demonstrate to government that it really works. Another example here, I'm not, not a big fan of artificial leaky dams. I'd rather that uh, they were natural uh, areas that were holding water back. But in order to demonstrate the benefits and indeed to genuinely reduce flood risk in this particular, particular catchment, they did construct some leaky dams made of timber um, up, up, uh, up in Northumberland and you know, were able to demonstrate very significant reduction in in pollutants moving downstream and in, in terms of reducing the flood peak. And this really important fact from the Pont Bren exercise, and this, this, this is one, it's actually right now, you know, with all this flooding, particularly in the north of England, and water rushing off sheepy hillsides, this is one that we do need to remember. Infiltration in these shelter belts because of the disturbance of the soils and because of the impact that the trees and scrub has, infiltration is 60 times higher in those strips than it is in intensive grazing land, sheep grazing land five metres away. 
And I was up in Broughton Estate in Yorkshire last week and doing some filming and walking across this ground and you could feel the ground squelching. And often people will say to you, well, the catchment's saturated. It can't, you know, it can't cope with any more. It doesn't matter what you do. Catchment's saturated. No, the top few inches are saturated, but water is not infiltrating at the rate that it should. As a result, it is washing down the surface almost imperceptibly through the grass and the top couple of inches of soil down these steep slopes into the valleys below. And that is because of decades or sometimes centuries of panning from the impact of livestock. So we need to find ways of slowing the flow off the hills and we know lots now about how to do that. I, I want to touch on challenges as well. So the food challenge gets thrown up quite a lot. But actually, my view is, if we are really serious about food risk, if you're really saying to me, rewilding 5% of this land is going to have a serious impact on food production and put us all at risk, then should we not be tackling the 40% wastage that we already have in the Western world of food that is produced to eat by humans, not being eaten by humans? Surely if you're serious about that, that's where we need to be looking. And it will t I will take a lot of persuading to be thinking anything else beyond that particular point. But I will just mention these other two. Rewilding projects will still produce some food all the people I'm dealing with do have animals or other products on their land. One, one rewilding estate owner produces amazing gin from fresh juniper and a range of uh, shrubby species on the hillside. So it's not that rewilding is not producing food. It will produce some food, much less, much better quality. And of course, all these other societal benefits. And then the thing at the bottom, which slightly scares me, don't really know much about it. Um, don't know if I do want to know much about it, to be honest. Synthetic, actually it's not just uh, synthetic meat production, it's synthetic food production generally. Um, you will have seen it mentioned in George Monbiot's programme recently. Um, now I'm, you know, I, I'm an omnivore, so I, I eat anything and I like to know what I'm eating. It sounds slightly scary, but whether we like it or not, it is moving in that direction. I don't know how far and how fast, but it's something we all need to be aware of. Um, and right now, as we know, meat consumption is going down. So quite frankly, I think we go back to the top bullet point. If you're worried about food risk, focus on wastage. So this is where we are at the moment um, with the large scale projects, the blue dots, are clusters or single estates over a thousand acres that I know of in England uh, particularly. I've logged a few from Scotland that I've um, gathered information about from the internet, but all the English ones I know of and have been to, so I'm confident I could call them rewilding, either in terms of what they're doing or what they are serious about starting to do. Now, if you'd have asked me a year ago, um, I'd probably only given you half a dozen. So things are changing quite fast. Some of them were already there under the radar. Some of them uh, have embarked on this in the last few months. And I'd like to think that as we at Rewilding Britain establish a rewilding network, which we're working on at the moment, um, we will see uh, a steady increase in these dots. Um, my ambition is to have you know, one in every county to start with. So come on, Avon, Somerset, <laughs> let's, let's talk. I'm ready when you are. 
there must be uh, people who have contacts out there who know somebody who has land at scale that might be interested. I want to move on now to policy, the policy aspects. Now, my role is twin track. On the one hand, I'm working with farmers, advising them, encouraging them, connecting them with other people. Uh, we will be bringing them in, of course, into this network. But on the other hand, I need to be in and out of Westminster and number 10, as I am now, uh, lobbying hard for rewilding Britain to get our policies changed so that it will be easier for uh, landowners and farmers to rewild in future. And we do actually have the right kind of signpost that I can latch on to. So I, remind, I will remind ministers of some of these documents. So, 25-year plan. Right up front in the 25-year plan, it talks about nature recovery network. It talks about reintroducing species. Right there in the headlines on like the executive summary. So we need to remind them of that. The plan is already two years old um, and uh, obviously not much has happened since it was published, but now is the time to act. Then with regard to the nature recovery network, further down in the document, it talks about 500,000 hectares of land outside of protected sites um, for additional wildlife habitat. That's a massive, massive ambition. If we're serious about this, then we're going to have to embrace rewilding because you're going to have to be doing this at scale. You can't do tens of thousands of new nature reserves. We're going to have to be operating at scale. And it's great to have people like Tony Juniper backing us all the way, saying rewilding will be a massively important part of the nature recovery network. He is the chair of Natural England, and I, and I need to uh, use those kind of quotes um, to help government catch up, get their policy to catch up with practice. And one of the key ways that we can do this is by using this future environmental land management scheme. Uh, I talked earlier about CAP, and I talked about this public money for public goods scheme. And I'm just sharing this with you. This has been around now for oh, at least six months, and it is a suggestion that DEFRA have developed to show how the scheme, the future environmental land management scheme might work. And it's a, they're suggesting it could be a three-tiered scheme, and I stress this is not policy. This is just considering what we might do and how we might do it. But I'm just showing you here the, the, the middle tier and the top tier of this scheme. The middle tier is more or less like countryside stewardship. It's good practice, um, good woodland management, upland management, but still lots of management. Um, and the top level scheme, landscape scale, land use change, this is about very large scale restoration and very large scale impact, coastal realignment. That's, that's pretty big, for example. And what I'm saying is, right, we need to get rewilding in to this top tier. We need to stop being so worried about the word rewilding. We've got plenty of people out there doing it, doing it in the way that I've described to you all tonight, which is entirely reasonable and entirely practical and sensible. We need to get over the wolves and bears and abandoning the land rubbish and focus on this approach. And in order to do that, you need to help landowners by getting rewilding into this top tier of this future scheme. Because if you can do rewilding at scale, you are going to get so much more bang for your buck. You won't just be restoring peat bogs. 
you won't just be doing bits of natural flood management. You'll be doing everything, all of this restoration and natural processes at scale. And if you've got people with the same will and the same incentive and the same tools and machinery and skills doing that with the same partner organisations in the same place, you're going to get, as I say, much better bang for the buck. So that is uh, one of the number one priorities in terms of policy for us right now. And this is roughly how it might look. You would have very large-scale rewilding areas, shown in green here, which, uh, within which all these principles that I've described to you would apply. And around them, one would have high-end stewardship, good countryside stewardship, farmed land around it in the area in, in, encompassed by the yellow line. And those areas, some of those areas will have protected sites within them, triple SIs, nature reserves, etc. Um, but those nature reserves would be providing species uh, and communities of invertebrates and plants, etc., which could colonise into the rewilding areas. But conversely, we will find things popping up in large-scale rewilding areas, like purple emperors, for example, which came out of nowhere at NEP. Um, we will have these species which actually could populate some of the nature reserves and triple uh, SIs. And then the other thing that, I've tried, that we've emphasised in this diagram is connectivity with urban areas. If you look at the, uh, the grey area in the middle, it's re representing an urban area. Urban connection zones. Very important that we get people out from cities into these truly wild areas um, so that people can understand them more, can, can, can come to trust them more, not be afraid of them. This is very important. People are becoming afraid of nature, uh, of, afraid of things that might be out there that might harm them. So getting people into these landscapes is critically important as well. And the other point I want to emphasise about this is not just the land. We need to rewild the seas as well, the seabed and the intertidal zones. We need to be doing things there to re-establish natural processes and stop man having a significant detrimental impact on, on that wildness. So this is a new schematic that we've just produced, which, which I'm now going to pitch um, to government as to how this future system could work. I'm going to finish with reintroductions. Um, I have already mentioned wolves and bears, uh, uh, and that's why I've got a line through this. Uh, personally, love to see wolves back in Scotland, roaming free. It could work ecologically if only we were ready for it societally, but we're not. Um, but uh, the simple truth is, you know, we're only going to see these things in enclosures for the time being. And uh, like I say, I haven't got enough time. You can tell by looking at me, I'm too old <laughs> to have enough time to be trying to persuade government to be releasing these things into the wild. We need to focus on those things that are doable. And here are some examples which are either already happening or will happen. I'm confident we will see links back in parts of Scotland or northern England before too long, within 10 to 20 years. I know it seems a long time, but like I say, it's a marathon. European wildcat, there are already reintroduction proposals in southern Scotland, um, and we have some great pine martin reintroduction schemes like the Forest of Dean, not far away. Um, and if, if we think about these reintroductions in a strategic way, a strategic suite of species, then hopefully we can bring uh, people along with us. I, I'm not such a big fan of just randomly picking something because it's flavour of the month. It would be better if we did this strategically. And actually, pine martin and red squirrel 
um, provide a perfect example of that. So pine martins are shown to be having an impact on grey squirrel populations uh, and a beneficial impact, therefore, on red squirrel populations, quite simply because grey squirrels are heavier, so it's harder for them to elude pine martins in the branches of trees, and also because grey squirrels uh, are on the ground a lot um, compared with red squirrels, and pine martins tend to feed mainly on the ground. And so where pine martins have been released in Ireland and Scotland and now in Midwest Wales, the evidence is showing very conclusively that grey squirrel numbers are going down and red, red squirrel numbers are bouncing back. So there's a, quite a neat uh, interaction and one might reintroduce uh, pine martins and maybe five, ten years later, red squirrels if they're not recolonizing naturally. White-tailed eagle, white eagles we have on the Isle of Wight, fantastic to have them back. There are one or two other proposals I know of around the coast which will be coming to light within the next year or two. And there's no reason why we couldn't have these back. They're around northwestern Europe coastline in equally densely populated countries. If you go to Nijmegen, you can literally cycle out of the town and see them a mile or two out of the town in the rewilded floodplain of the river there. So, you know, they should be back. And we will see more of these species back in the countryside in time. And then uh, there are other species like black grouse, which if you get the landscape right and the habitat right and you're doing it at scale where there's plenty of variety, there will be suitable habitat for black grouse if, if we're rewilding in the Peak District or maybe even the future in the southwest, getting them back in, in Exmoor, for example, would be amazing. The one species we will definitely see uh, back and we are already seeing back, of course, is the European beaver and I'm off... Uh, day after tomorrow to uh, a really important meeting of the River Otter Beaver Trial. Um, we've come to the end of the five years. The report will be published uh, this Friday online from that trial and it will show overwhelmingly that it has been a great success in terms of the beaver's impact on biodiversity and uh, low level of detrimental impact on things like flooding and fish. So I always describe them as 90% good and 10% bad, and the 10% bad we can deal with. It's not beyond the wit of man to manage that as we need to. So I'm, I'm hoping that government will take the recommendations from this report and start to sanction releases into the wild in the right places with the right strategy in place. And here is a, a copy of that report. If you uh, must, that, that website is <laughs> address is too big to note down, but you might want to take a photo of it. But that's where you will be able to see the report online. And again, you know, great evidence from the southwest showing the impact that beavers have on holding back sediments, reducing nitrates and phosphates, etc. There's some some superb evidence out there now. So this is my final slide. I've talked about the principles and the priorities. Uh, I hope that I have explained to you that rewilding is a good thing, and if we're doing it in the right places uh, on a relatively small percentage of the country to start with, then surely it's entirely reasonable to be doing that based on the evidence we have so far in terms of ecosystem services and wildlife. But I use this cartoon to remind us that if we're going to achieve it, we have to rewild our minds and our thinking as well. Thank you.